It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I stayed late at the office last night to appear on the special report panel, and it was a lot of fun with Brett Baer. Uh, we talked about all of these Democrats on the Hill who suddenly seem to be retiring, announcing they're not running for re-election next year. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that they've decided the odds are overwhelming, really, at this point, that the Republicans will take the House in next year's election. What I said was, you know, if you're a committee chairman or subcommittee chairman, you have your little fiefdom, it's hard to go from that to being a powerless member of the minority where, you know, your party can't even control what gets on the floor. And I said, you know, it makes uh, some of these Democrats say, you know, I haven't seen my family in decades, but I, I really should spend more time with them since some of them are using that old Dodge. Uh, we also talked about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. I have more to say about that in a couple of moments. Like everybody else, we had to be prepared for the possibility that there might be a verdict during that hour um, that ended just before we came on the air when the jury adjourned for the day. Uh, Brett has this little kicker now that he does at the end of the program where you come up with a forecast for a headline for the next day. And it's often kind of tongue-in-cheek. So mine was Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, seek marriage counselor as rocky relationship leaks out. That got a laugh. Uh, I don't really mean that they're seeking a marriage counselor. Maybe mediator. And I'll have more on that too as well. Uh, Britney Spears, anybody who has watched me and listened to me on the podcast knows I was sort of in the free Britney camp. I thought this conservatorship uh, that she's finally gotten out of that was controlled by her father, that controlled her life, was absolutely outrageous. But if I were her PR advisor, I would tell her now that she has won the legal battle and can basically do whatever the heck she wants to kind of cool it because... Um, the more she rambles, the more she now would make people think, well, you know, maybe she was a little bit off her rocker. Um, she did a new Instagram video. She teased the possibility of a tell-all interview with Oprah. Um, nothing wrong with that, but it's not clear whether it's actually happening. Um, she says, it's really nice. I'm not here to be a victim. I live with victims my whole life. She wants to be an advocate for the disabled. And then... She uh, goes after family members, including her church-going mother, for putting her through a demoralizing and degrading experience. I'm not even mentioning all the bad things they did to me, which they should all be in jail for. I'm used to keeping peace for the family and keeping my mouth shut, but not this time. I have not forgotten. And I hope they can look up tonight and know exactly what I mean. So, you know, the whole thing was premised on going after her dad, and now she's going after her mom, and, you know, I'm sorry she has a dysfunctional family, but she won the battle. I mean, after many years, she now is free of the conservatorship. She can do whatever she wants. Maybe she needs to, like, dial it down on the family feud front. Uh, Bill Maher was on uh, CNN last night with Chris Cuomo. And, you know, one of the things I've always liked about Maher is, you know, an unabashed liberal, you know, spent four years denouncing Donald Trump and all that. But he's not averse to giving it to his own side. And we need more commentators and comedians and pontificators and bloviators like that. And at one point in the interview, Maher said, you know, something like Hunter Biden. I mean, if Don Jr. had done what Hunter Biden has done, it would be every night, all night on MSNBC. Uh, and that's kind of true. He went on to say, but the fact that it's Hunter Biden and Joe's on the blue team, that's the problem with America. Everything is so binary. Everything that the red team does, doesn't like, goes in the blue bin and vice versa. 
And, you know, I mean, it's really hard to argue with that when you look at what uh, all the cable networks do, particularly at night in the opinion primetime sections. I uh, want to touch on uh, coronavirus before we uh, get into the top five stories. Uh, you know, I look at these numbers every day, as you know, and it had gotten down to 70,000 average new cases a day. Now it's up to 88,000. And Axios has a piece saying coronavirus cases are rising nationally and in most states, an ominous trend heading into Thanksgiving week next week. Um, Two-thirds of Americans plan to have Thanksgiving gatherings. And I'm not opposed to that. And, you know, a lot of people are vaccinated and all that. But you know, these latest numbers, it seemed like we had beaten this Delta surge. So I don't fully understand why the numbers have risen back up, but there's been a kind of a jump in cases as much as 20% uh, overall in the last two weeks, and particularly in some parts of the upper Midwest and New England. Now, this dovetails with the news that the Biden administration is going to purchase 10 million um rounds of Pfizer's new COVID pill. It's going to cost $5 billion. And the administration thinks this will change the trajectory of the pandemic. Because right now, basically, you get the vaccine, or if you don't get the vaccine, and putting ivermectin aside, you know, and you get COVID, it can get pretty serious, not for everybody, but you could end up in the hospital and you could end up dead. More than a thousand people a day are still dying, which is better than it was, but still pretty grim according to the latest numbers. So the administration has made a deal with Pfizer uh, to buy these pills, which has shown great results for people who've already gotten um, COVID-19. And uh, there's also a pill by Merck. Biden aides, say the Washington Post, uh, see both treatments as a potential game changer to help restore a sense of normalcy heading into the pandemic's second anniversary. Well, I think that's great. I think it's a smart move by Biden um, because obviously there's still a chunk of the country that is not getting vaccinated, that doesn't plan to get vaccinated. And at least now there's a treatment available, you know, for anybody who's vaccinated or not, who gets this, uh, you know, awful disease. All right. I think the big story today, number one, has got to be what the House did late yesterday in censuring Republican Congressman Paul Gosar. Now, this has to do with that animated video that he tweeted that, not to put the fi- too fine a point on it, depicted him killing AOC and swinging his swords at President Biden. Yes, it's a cartoon and they were monsters and all of that. Uh, and so the Democrats took matters into their own hands. It was almost perfectly a party-line vote, 223 to 207. One member voted present, and two Republicans who voted for the Trump impeachment, that would be Liz Cheney and Adam Kingsinger, whose latter is retiring from the House, voted with the Democrats to censure Gosar. And it has teeth in it because it also kicks Gosar off of the two committee assignments that he has. Now, some of the debate over this was pretty emotional, as you might imagine. Nancy Pelosi saying, disguising death threats against a member of Congress and a president of the United States in an animated video does not make those death threats any less real or less serious. And she said that the refusal of Republicans to take any action against Gosar was outrageous. 
And it really was a kind of a symbol of how dysfunctional a Congress is, how partisan it is, how crazy things have gotten. Um, and what was fascinating to me was to watch uh, the Republicans on the floor, led by Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy gave this speech in which he talked about inflation and supply chain and all of the problems facing America as a rhetorical way of saying, hey, we got all these serious problems. Why are we wasting our time on a cartoon? But, you know, it seemed to me that he wanted to talk about everything but the cartoon. Uh, because, look, yes, it's symbolic. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, take a step back. One member of Congress posting something, even if it's supposed to be, quote, funny. I mean, if it was about you, a member of your family, you wouldn't think it was funny. If it was about your colleague at work, would the person who posted it still have a job? Um, essentially saying they should be dead. Essentially saying they should be dead. Now, I happen to think, yes, Gosar took it down, but Kevin McCarthy said nothing about this for about a week. Most Republicans said nothing about it. I happen to think if they had called out their colleague for this, and then McCarthy said, well, I talked to him quietly, and he took it down, and he kind of acknowledged it was a bad idea, but then Gosar didn't do that. And he came out a day or so before the censure vote and said, I didn't apologize. Why are people saying I apologized? I didn't apologize. I, I just took it down. Uh, and some you know, Republicans are saying this is just a joke, and, and cartoons are sometimes violent. I don't know. Um, and, you know, there was the, the procedural argument that Democrats should not be exercising their power in the majority. And Kevin McCarthy went on at length about how this is a double standard. And what about all the things that Democrats have said and done? And other Republicans brought up Ilhan Omar and some of her uh, comments that can only be construed as anti-Semitic and brought up... Um, Adam Schiff and the relationship he had with this Chinese woman years ago who turned out to be a spy or an alleged spy. Uh, so it was all about, you know, well, no, your side did this, no, your side did that. But it is very unusual uh, to have one side basically kick a member from the other side off of his committees. And Gosar got up there and, you know, he wouldn't apologize. He was defiant. He says this is a false narrative. Uh, the video was not dangerous or threatening. He compared himself to Alexander Hamilton. Oh, that's a stretch. Uh, because he was the first person attempted to be censured by the House, except he ended up not being censured. Uh, and AOC stood up, and naturally, she was pretty emotional. And she said, you know, this is not about me. This is about what we're willing to accept. This is about being the messages being sent by this video. What is so hard about saying that this is wrong, Ocasio-Cortez said. Uh, and look, Gosar has drawn criticism before for pretty extremist views. Uh, he said that um, the January 6th attack on the Capitol uh, were part of a left-wing plot. He also said that the, riot and the violence in Charlottesville in 2017, left-wing plot. Um, all in all, I think the whole thing was sad. And I do think if the Republicans had stepped up, maybe the Democrats wouldn't have felt the need to take this step. But McCarthy also made clear that if or when uh, the Republicans take control next year, that there'll be payback and that they will bring the same kind of censure resolutions against Democrats who say extremist or inflammatory things. Uh, and so you have the endless cycle that goes on.
Uh, he even made a reference to Nancy Pelosi's swan song. Well, she said she's not going to run again, and obviously she could change that. I don't think she wants to be minority leader again. Uh, she knows uh, that that's not a lot of fun comparing to being, compared to being the Speaker of the House. Wall Street Journal editorial called The Decline of Congress about this. The episode reveals that many members of Congress now behave as if their job is to become social media influencers or cable TV stars, as opposed to accomplishing something. Healthcare and tax policy are so, quote, establishment. Tweeting a cartoon, says the journal, is a perfect metaphor for today's house. And the punishment is overkill, if we may use that word in this context, since it was a stupid cartoon, not an actual incitement to violence. The most recent case of actual violence against members was the shooting of Steve Scalise um, at that uh, congressional baseball practice. Mr. Gosar, who is 63 years old but acts like a teenager on TikTok, deserves ridicule more than censure. And by the way, uh, one of the stories I read on this said the last person to be censured, I think by the House, was Charlie Rangel. And that was one over various you know, sleazy activities. And that was one that was led by the Democrats against their fellow member. It's been a long time since there was a bipartisan effort along those lines. All right, number two, uh, going to the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And the uh, what I have to say here is that there's a lot of chatter right now. Everybody's got a little box up, says, you know, jury deliberations resume. Um, but it's kind of like, you know, baseball game during a rain delay. There's a lot of filler and a lot of chatter. Uh, we don't know what these jurors are doing behind closed doors. I've covered a lot of trials that I learned a long time ago. You cannot predict what a jury is going to do based on the amount of time that the jury deliberates. Um, and Jim Garrity in National Review has an interesting take on all this. Uh, he says he hasn't really paid much attention to trials since the OJ days, until this one, until the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Um, and he said, you know, you can't really tell what the jury is thinking about, what they're working through, because so much of it is behind closed doors, except when the jurors come out and make a request of the judge. For example, they wanted to rewatch certain videos uh, from the trial that were presented as evidence. Those old enough to remember OJ the eight-month Simpson trial, man, that gripped America. Um, a lot of people watching thought the prosecutors had laid out an open-and-shut case against O.J. Simpson and his two victims, his former wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, demonstrating all the evidence like blood-stained clothes, DNA evidence, shoe prints, hair, and fiber evidence. It was a slam dunk to people watching TV. And, of course... It was a non-guilty verdict. Many years later, one of the jurors, says Garrity, has said on, in television interview that she had voted not guilty as payback to the LAPD for the Rodney King verdict. And she said she thought 90% of her fellow jurors felt that way. Uh, and so the jurors have many different kinds of motivations, and it's very Hard to game. As uh, Garrity says, attempting to predict the jury's decision is a fool's errand. The uh, argument and evidence that may seem overwhelming to you watching on a screen at home may not look the same to the jurors. And he goes on to say, look, there's a lot of boring parts to trial. A lot of, you know, ancillary witnesses going through what is the legal standard for this, that, the other thing. 
and jurors don't always make the right decision. But there's always poss the possibility that the boring parts of the trial that the media choose not to cover or emphasize actually included something consequential that changed a juror's perceptions. They are charged by the judge uh, with having to pay attention to all this stuff. And the people who dip in and out of the TV coverage, you know, they want to see the exciting stuff. What did Kyle Rittenhouse say? Why did he start crying? What about the uh, guy he wounded, who, by the way, aided the self-defense claims of the now 18-year-old Rittenhouse by saying, yeah, Rittenhouse didn't try to shoot me until I brandished a gun and pointed it at him. The purpose of the court is to determine truth to the extent that is possible and apply the law. The purpose of television is to inform, entertain, and some might argue, distract. A good judge doesn't care if the trial is entertaining, but more than a few talking heads and legal and political commentators who get a lot of airtime during this, these trials are heavily invested in the simplistic narratives of heroes, victims, and villains. And I think that's a very smart take on Jim's part. Uh, at the, uh, during the proceedings yesterday, as the jurors were asking certain questions, Judge Bruce Rittenhouse went off at one point on the media coverage. Uh, he said, when I talked about problems with the media when this trial started, we were there in part, not fully, but in part because grossly irresponsible handling of what comes out of this trial. It's really quite frightening. Frightening, said the judge. He didn't spell out exactly what he meant. The defense lawyers were talking about a video that was played on Fox um, that Fox may have purchased, and there was an attempt to make a mistrial attempt. This gets kind of down in the weeds because the prosecution said the version of the video was this drone video from overhead uh, that, that they were given, the defense was given, was pretty low quality, but the, what the prosecutors had was something of very high quality. I don't really think that's a, you know, a reasonable basis for tossing out a trial. But the other weird thing here is that the judge made clear that he has not ruled out a mistrial. But, but he also said, apparently, according to news accounts, that he might even declare a mistrial after a jury verdict. Well, why on earth would you go through days of deliberation, let the jury reach a verdict, and then toss it out? If you're going to toss it out, toss it out now. I don't, I'm not a legal scholar, but I've covered a lot of trials. I've covered the Justice Department. I've never heard anything like this. Maybe he has his reasoning. In the end, I doubt he will, um, in effect, overrule the jury by declaring a mistrial, but you never know. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Uh, number three, you know, I talked a lot yesterday and wrote a column yesterday about uh, Chris Christie. Uh, trying to thread that needle by saying the Republican Party needs to move on to the future and not dwell on the past, taking shots at Donald Trump without trying to completely alienate the MAGA crowd and getting some pushback in the television interviews that he's done. He's been everywhere. Well, you know who else has spoken out of this is Rupert Murdoch, uh, the head of Fox Corp and News Corp. Uh, and it was at the annual shareholder meeting for News Corp and has been publicly reported. And Murdoch said the current American political debate is profound about whether education or welfare or economic opportunity. It is crucial, he said, that conservatives play an active, forceful role in that debate. But that will not happen if President Trump stays focused on the past. The past is the past, and the country is now in a contest to define the future. Um, now, 
contrary to what some people believe, Rupert Murdoch doesn't tell people on Fox what to say. I haven't talked to him in a couple of years. Um, he's giving his own opinion, but he's obviously doing it in a very public forum. And he is, in a way, saying what Chris Christie is saying, saying what some other Republicans are saying, but a lot of those Republicans are saying it privately. That is not helpful to the GOP if Donald Trump virtually every day, and if you're a reporter like me, you get the, the stuff in your inbox, talks about stolen election, rigged election, recounts, unfair, um, gins up these claims of shenanigans, none of which was proven by his own Justice Department under Bill Barr. None of which was proven in any of the federal state lawsuits filed by his side, his campaign, his team. Um, it just hasn't held up. But whether you believe that or not, does the Republican Party want to spend next year, 2022, the midterm election year, arguing about what happened in 2020? Uh, Christie says no. Some others say no. And now Rupert says no. By the way, at this, um, in his remarks, he also uh, went after one of his other favorite targets, which is big digital, he called it, We're talking about Google and Facebook in particular, uh, in his view, censoring conservative content on their social media networks. He said the companies, and a lot of this is economic, of course, he said the companies manipulate online ad rates to the detriment of marketers and consumers and should be more transparent about their algorithms. Here's the quote. Algorithms are subjective and they can be manipulated by people to kill competition and damage other people, publishers, and businesses. Look, there's a whole bunch of people in the news business, particularly the corporations that still dominate the news business, that feel like Facebook, Twitter to a lesser extent, and Google, uh, which includes YouTube, is, is stealing their lunch, you know, is making a whole lot of money by taking their content. Now, to some extent, uh, our businesses are complicit in that because we use social media to promote what we get, and we want to drive people to our sites so they can see, you know, my appearances on Media Buzz or Special Report or whatever it is, so they can read my columns or um, see what I have to say on other subjects. Uh, at the same time, obviously, it's great for Google, it's great for Facebook, because they don't have to go out and hire a bunch of reporters, a bunch of producers, a bunch of content generators. So that debate will go on. Let's move to number four. So um, I've talked at some length about the CNN report, and there have been others, Politico and others, but the CNN report really stung the Biden White House. CNN reporting about tensions between the Kamala Harris camp and the Joe Biden camp and saying that many Biden White House officials are, have had enough of what they see as the vice president's office's uh, dysfunction and lack of focus. And in the same story, which was a well-reported and pretty fair story, also said that the vice president and her people feel that they've been used badly by the president and that she's been sidelined and, you know, given a bunch of no-win assignments like the border crisis, which they're not going to solve or be able to solve anytime soon. So what happened this morning? The vice president of the United States went on Good Morning America. She doesn't do many television interviews. And of course, she did this to get out her side of the story. But at the same time, and this is classic Kamala, she's so cautious that she doesn't really want to engage on the questions she knows are coming. She wanted to talk about the infrastructure law and all the great things the administration is doing. So George Stephanopoulos says, look, Vice presidents always face chatter about their role and relevance. Stephanopoulos, of course, worked in the Clinton White House, where Al Gore 
was vice president. Even your close friends and allies, he says, have expressed some frustration because they think you can be more helpful than you've been asked to be. Do you share that frustration? What do you say to your friends who are frustrated? Harris completely ignores the question and says, this was a good week. And this week, well, when we got this Bipartisan Infrastructure Act passed and signed by the president, it makes a statement about all the hard work that is going into it. She goes on and on and on. Doesn't answer the question. George follows up. So you don't feel misused or underused? No, I don't, Harris said. I am very, very excited about the work we have accomplished, but I am also absolutely clear-eyed that there's a lot more to do and we are going to get it done. So he got a kind of a one answer out of her. She doesn't feel misused. Well, what's she going to do? She can't go on television and say, you know what, I don't like the way I'm being used at all. Because it would be, it would cause a huge, a huge rupture and just inflame the tensions between her and the president. And when you are VP, and nobody knows this better than Joe Biden, you know, you have no statutory power except to ceremonially serve as the president of the Senate. Any influence you have comes from the assignments and the visibility that the president gives you. So she can't complain. She has a constituency of one. At the same time, as everyone knows, Biden says he's running again in 2024. There's not a lot of Democrats who believe that, I've got to say. And so Kamala Harris, obviously as VP, would be a prime contender, although she certainly wouldn't have a clear path to the nomination. So she has to quietly worry about her own political standing, which, you know, 28% approval rating in the latest USA Today poll, without seeming to be pushing her own agenda. Jan Psaki uh, said the following yesterday. She's the first African-American woman, woman of color, Indian-American woman to serve in this job. So many firsts, right? It's a lot to have on your shoulders. She is somebody who, at a much higher level than the rest of us, wants to be seen as the talented, experienced, expert, substantive policy person, part of the president that she is. But I do think there have been some attacks that are beyond because of her identity. Hmm. I don't doubt that there's some racism and some sexism involved, but the attacks on CNN, oh, this is racist, this is sexist. One thing I didn't mention yesterday is the co-author of the piece, with uh, Edward Isaac Dover is a black woman. So what would she be doing writing a, a, a racist piece? It's just, it's just, I just think the, the backlash against CNN is way over the top. And by the way, um, I have a column today about this uh, Politico morning console poll I mentioned yesterday. Um, 48% say Biden is not mentally fit to be president. 46% say he is. What I didn't have a chance to research before yesterday's podcast is how utterly partisan that divide is. So, 78% of Democrats either strongly or somewhat agree that Biden is mentally fit. He's fine. 86% of Republicans, 76% of them strongly, say the president is not mentally fit. So I think that shows you it's a proxy for whether you like or don't agree with or dislike or agree with. Joe Biden. But one worrisome sign for the White House is that 47% of independents disagree that he's fit for office. All right, number five, even if you're not a sports fan, I think this is just fascinating. Even if you're not a sports fan, you know Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors in the NBA. And you probably know, if you know nothing else, that he's an uncannily accurate three-point shooter. Well, the Wall Street Journal has this whole piece about the technology involved. And he practices and practices, and he is, you know, the best three-point shooter like in the history of basketball. And I think helps spark a trend where a lot more 
players are taking these three-point shots, which changes the way you defend. Uh, it changes the way you can obviously run up the score by getting those extra points and not just the two-point shots. And he is trying to perfect, even as good as he is, he wants to get better. So there's now technology that exists, according to this journal piece, about when you get the ball in to the hoop, even if it's a swish, you still have, what is it, about six inches on either side. So what um, Curry is trying to do in his practicing is to make his shots even more accurate. So rather than being uh, within the six inches, that would still, you know, it still goes in. It makes that nice swish sound and you, your team gets three points. He wants to get it down to just three inches. Here, a shot that strays nearly five inches from the center of the hoop can still be a swish. But the margin in error, margin of error, uh, is too high for Curry. So last summer, as he shot threes in the NBA offseason, he gave himself only three inches of wiggle room. He was even more demanding when shooting from closer. His leeway then was two inches. Um, because if he can really nail it, then if he's off slightly, he's still going to score the shots. He found, uh, based on this technology, 79% of the shots at the dead center of the rim went in, but there was little difference of up to one or two inches. But there was a much more difference when you get to like three or four inches. Then it's like falling off a cliff. So this is a guy who is so disciplined and so dedicated that he is using this technology to find out where his shots fall to try to make himself even more accurate. I mean, it's the kind of thing you couldn't have done 10 years ago because it didn't exist. I'm a big Steph Curry fan. Uh, I love to watch him play. Um, and, you know, if, if he's doing it, I'm sure some other... But, you know, does everybody have the discipline to go out there for... Even when you're a, a tremendous sharpshooter and for hours and hours shoot the ball and try to make it three inches closer to the center of the basket instead of four or five inches, when four or five inches is good enough. It's just fascinating to me, and, you know, baseball has a lot of, you know, data now. It changes the strategy. Um, you know, this is not the way games were played 10, 20, 30 years ago, but it is the way they are played in the 21st century. So we'll be keeping an eye, obviously, on the trial, on whether or not Biden's going to try to pass that Build Back Better Act. Remember, this was going to be the week. He was going to do it. Well, I read today that it might pass, but it's just a procedural vote because then it's got to come back after the Senate does its version. This is going to drag on until Christmas. Let's face it. I mean, that's not a prediction. It's just I've watched Congress. You know, next week they're going home for Thanksgiving. And the idea that this was going to be done quickly, I think even the people, which is to say the progressives who wanted to tie the bills together, they knew they weren't going to get this bill right away. They do believe they will get the bill, um, but we shall see. I never underestimate the ability of Congress to screw things up, unless it comes down to you know midnight on December 24th. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll subscribe. We'll see you to folks tomorrow with more Boast Media. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.